Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today we're joined by Liv Mariano and Danielle McKinney from the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation in British Columbia, Canada. This is a conversation about not special education, but education, inclusion, how to change our conversation, how to change our minds to an inclusive classroom. In this episode, Liv and Danielle provide an abundance of resources for every age. I had so many light bulb moments of things I learned today in our conversation, and we are so happy to share this information and the supports and resources that are there. There is a link to their website in our show notes. There's also a link, if you are in the British Columbia area, to Baskets of Love, And that provides baskets and information for new parents of a child with Down syndrome. And I'd be amiss not to mention that the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation has their own podcast, a wonderful podcast called The Lowdown uh, that's been around a long time with great information. And I will have a link to that as well. So welcome, Liv and Danielle. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name's Liv, and I'm a speech-language pathologist at the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. It was formerly the Down Syndrome Research Foundation, so if you ever see that term out there. Um, But yeah, we've recently taken a shift to like service families, and we do a lot of programs that are directly working with families and providing a lot of resources on Down Syndrome. So that was kind of the shift in the, the name of the organization. And I've been there, I think, just over three years. And prior to that, I was working um, in Ontario um, in Canada with adults with developmental disabilities and some preschoolers. And Danielle's been at DSRF a while. (laughs) I've been there since 2011. Um, So I'm a teacher and we offer a range of programs, but I am officially the one-to-one program teacher. So I see kids exclusively in one-to-one settings. We do have some group programs for adults as well um, that other teachers lead. Prior to working at the DSRF, I also worked at a private school for kids with learning disabilities. So a lot of children who have dyslexia and ADHD and some other things like that. This is an in-person learning facility? Yes, (laughs) it is. uh, For the most part, it's been a lot of teleservice over the last year and a half or year and a bit. But yes, primarily in person. How many students do you guys have? I would say that we probably service an average of a 120 kids at one time between all of the programs. We offer occupational therapy, speech therapy, and education programs, as well as group programs. So yeah, probably about 120, but they kind of rotate in and out as well. What are the grade levels? Yeah, so we see students throughout the lifespan, which is really awesome. So like my youngest right now on my caseload 
I think, yeah, she's two and the oldest student I've seen so far has been in like their late thirties. So it's really cool that we get to see, yeah, like such a range in, yeah, like age um, and definitely one of like the benefits of working at an organization that, yeah, specializes in, in something. So I would say like the majority of our clients are definitely like, like younger. So um, that preschool and school age, um, but yeah, we do get the chance to see students of all different ages. How do people become a part of your program? We basically just offer our services. People go onto the website and they request uh, services. And then we just pick up clients um, as we have room in our caseload to see us on, on a one-to-one basis. Otherwise, it would be registering you know, for the group programs at the time when they are starting. We mostly um, service our direct area, so the lower mainland of British Columbia. But since COVID, we've had a lot of opportunity to kind of extend our services and offer more things via teleservice. There are some restrictions um, as far as like licensing goes for certain professions. But um, yeah, some of the teachers are, are open to seeing people all across the country. So it's been kind of a neat opportunity to see people, you know, just a bit of a further reach for us. And you also provide early intervention? Yeah, so we definitely see, um, we do a lot of like um, early parent groups, which is great. So parents that know that they're going to have a child with Down syndrome, um, we do like an information series. And that way it kind of, I think our goal of that is to build community right from the start of, you know, meeting other parents um, of children with Down syndrome. So we do try to, yeah, have programs available for really early years. Um, We've talked about doing like baby groups as well. Um, And yeah, I mean, students can come to DSRF at any age, which is really great. But yeah, early intervention, um, we definitely prioritize those clients because of what we know from research. Um, Yeah, so that's, that's been a really good asset to the program too. And do parents need a referral or they can, they can just look you up? Yep, they can self-refer. Yeah, some parents find out about us, you know, through word of mouth or um, there's a Baskets of Love program, I know. Um, Danielle probably knows a little bit more about that than I do. Yeah, we actually have a wonderful parent of one of our students who has started her own nonprofit organization called Baskets of Love. And so she organizes delivery of these baskets with information and fun toys and books and different things to be delivered to families with new babies with Down syndrome. So that might be the first time they hear about our organization, but um, we try to be out there in the community and have the other early intervention programs. Like there are some government run type things that could also get our our name out there and, and refer families, but no, we don't need a formal referral from a doctor or anything like that. And the baskets of love, we can put a link in the show notes mm-hmm. to the Baskets of Love, uh, information on how people could obtain one of those. The I just had a question about your, you have an information series. Is that information series available online? Is that something that new parents can could take advantage of? That's a good question because we, this past year, um, didn't run it like due to COVID, um, but it's typically been done like in person at the center. Um, I know there's talk about starting it up again, like, yeah, come this fall. So that's probably something that parents can look out for um, that will probably advertise to new parents. Um, But yeah, we did put a pause on that this past year, just due to COVID and the steep learning curve that we went through trying to get continue our services. Is that something that you guys would 
consider making available online a, a program that you would start? Because I, f- I feel like most of our conversations, getting the correct information out whenever that comes, whether it be before birth or after, it's finding those resources for parents and family members and friends to get the correct information. Yeah, I can definitely foresee some kind of shift in how we deliver that information because we have also offered an educator series in the past and that was first offered in person. So teachers and education assistants would come to the center, but during COVID we did offer it online and then um, made those recordings available for a time after the actual series ran. So definitely I could see a shift happening with the new parent series. We kind of also value the kind of intimate um, setting that that occurred with that specific program because they were new parents and they were looking for, you know, kind of community support and other people who were going through some of the same, same things. It was nice to have it in a, in a local kind of forum, but definitely, as you said, it would be great to get just the information out there um, that could be accessed anytime. Um, we do have another therapist who moved away to an area about four hours from the lower mainland and she runs the same type of group in that community. So we're trying to get things just um, out there in all different reaches, but um, yeah, we, there's only so many of us. <laughs> yeah, I would love to be able to provide that information or an ability. So even if that would be a different episode that we could talk about some of the things that you talk about in that series, I feel it's so important for parents to have all, you know, all the information there's, and there's so many, um, you know, our kids have milestones, but as parents, we have milestones as well. And just with the shift of any child, I I always felt like with my daughter, as soon as I had something figured out, she'd go and change. And then I'd have to learn something new. So I usually had like one day of a good, good, good job, mom. And then I'd be back into the unknown. Uh, I feel like the challenge with Down syndrome is that that unknown is also sprinkled with misinformation, which can make it so much more challenging for parents to have the right tools to support their, their child and their family and our community. So I would love for that conversation to continue and grow. Uh, but what, how Stephen discovered you or how you discovered each other was through an educational series that you did during uh, distance learning. I I know that with uh, the pandemic, a lot of things changed. And so it's great that you could shift and, and I, and I was able to listen to your recording of, you know, the information that was provided. So I'd like to talk about that because, and I'd also like to talk about education in this conversation, just in general. What was your experience or what is your experience with education and individuals with Down syndrome? You go ahead, Danielle. Yeah, I guess I probably have the more direct experience with education in particular. Um, So I trained as a general education teacher here in British Columbia. And then I kind of branched out to specialize more so in special education. I just finished a graduate diploma in inclusive education here in BC. And then, like I said, have been working with children with disabilities since 2000. But within our um, setting, we mentioned just the one-to-one sessions that we have, but we also have a lot of interactions with children's education teams within their school setting. So um, we have been involved in IEP meetings and to varying degrees, just collaborating with the school teams to, you know, help set up programs or to just find strategies that work for that student. 
yeah, things like that. Just trying as much to be part of their team as possible when it comes to education, because like you said, it is so much of the unknown. Just once you get one thing figured out, <laughs> it's uh, time to figure out a new piece of the puzzle. So yeah, we try to help with that as much as possible, having the experience that we do. Do either of you have personal experience with somebody with Down syndrome? So before working at this uh, foundation, no, I did not. So it was all on the job learning based on, you know, theory that I had acquired through school. Um, but yeah, working with these individuals in this position was our first, was my first experience. I don't, I'm not sure about Liv. Um. So I have like a, a personal connection to like developmental disabilities in general. So um, my sister, she had cerebral palsy um, and I have two brothers that are deaf um, and one of them has autism. So a lot of my exposure, um, you know, like their friends or camps they went to had people with Down syndrome. And um, so I always kind of knew I wanted to work with this population and in my hometown, I would do, um, I'm a huge like theater and improv nerd. <laughs> um, so I would run um, improv programs for people with yeah, developmental disabilities. And a huge majority um, of the people that would come out um, had Down syndrome. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's, yeah, like the, um, a lot of our guys love, you know, the arts and theater. And um, so that was kind of like, I think my first kind of connection was, uh, was through my siblings kind of getting to meet um, this kind of community. And yeah, throughout like my professional career, I had a few students with Down syndrome, but yeah, when this job opportunity came up, I, I flew across the country for it. Cause I always kind of knew like, yeah, this is, um, I don't know. It just, it brings me so much joy, like working with this population. Yeah. And, and prior to COVID, like Danielle said, we, we collaborate a lot with school teams. And I just found that um, because teleservice opened up so much, we could even collaborate like so much more with teams. Like I had um, before COVID, it would be mostly through email or the IEP meeting. And um, since it's been awesome to invite them to, you know, observe our sessions or um, observe the student at school. Um, and it definitely depends like on the school and the level of support they need. But um, it's been a huge, like that's been such a nice um, positive to come out of that. Um, is increased collaboration, definitely. Danielle, did you have any misperceptions or perceptions of Down syndrome that have changed? And how have they changed since working with individuals with Down syndrome? That's a great question. Um, honestly, I didn't have a lot of any perception. I just didn't have a lot of um, exposure at all to students with Down syndrome. Um, when I was in high school, there it was just kind of the beginning of inclusion in our province. So there was, it still looked a little more like integration or even like segregation, the special classes, but in the same school. So I, to be honest, yeah, I didn't have a lot of perceptions to, to change. <laughs> so it was really great just learning, you know, in a really wonderful environment, the joys that this population of people can bring. It, it has never been a dull moment and it's just been rewarding and fun and lovely the whole time. <laughs> I'm so glad you used the word segregation, because that's always been one of the thoughts at the foundation of 
our advocacy is that when you are removing a population and not having an inclusive classroom, not having those supports that create that environment, you're, you're segregating an entire population. And that word is not used for, I mean, I think we know why that word isn't used, but I think I, I, I'm always a little mystified at the fact that th- those two things aren't put together. You know, like when you're in an IEP or what a district will say about having a non-inclusive environment, they're segregating the. They're well, that segregating word segregation yeah, it they, holds so much weight, and I, I think, think it think holds weight and accountability. Like I think that I don't think it's in the disability community. Like that weight isn't there for a lot of people, and as it should be. You mean for accountability, right? The weight of account. I think the avoidance of that word gives the leeway to not have accountability. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. You get when when you emailed us at the beginning of June and said, you know, the season and that you're in a lot of IEPs. I want to know about that. So you you sit in IEPs. Can you tell us about your IEP experience? Yeah, this would be a request from the family. So to have their outside team members included in their, usually a public, well, no, private school um, as well, same kind of format. Yeah, they would request for us to join. And it could be people from our center. It could also be their, you know, social worker, their, you know, maybe if they see an occupational therapist or physical therapist from another clinic, everyone's and can be invited to just collaborate on, you know, building those goals. And then at the end of the year to report back on what kinds of progress they've seen, or we've all seen, because as we know, it can look really different in different settings. Um, so something that they're not, or they're not seeing at school, we might be really able to observe in our one-to-one settings, which um, is not to say that the school is doing something wrong or that, you know, well, we can do it better. It's just a fact that across different settings, children need to learn how to generalize. So we can help them by kind of sharing the types of strategies that we're using to help them to generalize into the classroom. And I shouldn't say even just we can help them. They can help us to understand what their classroom experience looks like so that we can um, either suggest some strategies or work on some strategies in our own um, sessions to help them to make that um, transfer to the classroom. You are so gracious and uh, patient with your description of an IEP. I've, I've never a lot of those feelings I've never had in in the IEP before. It's interesting you said pri- private and public because that's a totally different conversation. That the truth is, a lot of private schools don't have much inclusion. They use testing to create their population. And so unfortunately, you don't see a lot of inclusion in private schools, which at least here, yeah, at least here. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know what ha- I don't know what happens in school in British Columbia and in IEPs. But I think that, <laughs> that I want to experience whatever you have. Yeah, because- What I see already is just the fact that you can be there shows that with the fabric of a national healthcare system can give you the flexibility of having a third and fourth eye there to come in and, and be respected and know that there's no agenda and that the school quite possibly will listen to what you're saying. It's not like you're being brought in as a defense. It's just there to add a good quality information for the child. It sounds like it's a conversation. Instead yeah. of, uh, like you said, a, a discussion, defense, like, like a yeah, productive discussion, a collaboration yeah. instead of like what we usually experience is we know what our son needs. Very rarely is there support to finding that or to examining other ways. I mean, there's, there's very rarely 
even sometimes when someone has the best intentions, their hands are kind of tied to what they're allowed to do. Uh, so I just, I'm so uplifted by just your description of an IEP. It just sounds fabulous to me. The thought that you could go in and know that you could teach the teacher in the classroom. And also when you said that you might have something to learn, you know, I, I have to admit because of our experience, we've, we've gotten to this and it's been eight years and there hasn't been a time when there's been something given to us where we've been able to to learn a new way, like from a teacher or a classroom, no. because normally there's that drive to get our son out of the classroom or they haven't even read the IEP or don't know how to implement the IEP. So it's very refreshing to hear that collaboration exists. And this is something that you, you do for the families that you service in your organization? Your area. Is it available to other families? <laughs> I don't think it's. <laughs> yeah, it, it just would be for the students that are on our caseload for the most part at that time. So if they're starting the school year out, you know, as one of our clients, then we can go in and, um, you know, a lot of times it is for us even just listening to what their school day looks like and, you know, what can we maybe think in the back of our heads about how to structure our own um, therapy or, or education sessions to, um, yeah, to give them the skills that they need to succeed in their classroom. But yeah, on definitely more collaborative teams, then we've had a lot more like, yeah, let's see, you know, what you can do and what we can do and how we can put it all together. And that's great. BC has done a real shift in their uh, curriculum. So it is a lot more competency based than, I guess, uh, content. So I think just that alone is a little bit easier to, to structure IEP goals around so that the different levels and different um, abilities can also be working towards the same goals. I won't try to, to um, describe the new curriculum because I've never taught in, I haven't taught in the public system since it's been implemented, but just knowing what I know from, from looking it over, um, it definitely, and having kids in the system, of course. Yeah, it definitely is um, kind of more wide ranged and um, based on those end goals more so than like, will they learn the 10 provinces and things like that? So per province, things can change in education. That's something that I don't know. It's, it's per province, like a state, things are different in other provinces. Yeah. So I'm from Ontario and it looks, it looks mighty different there um, in terms of yeah education. So here it's yeah. Provincial education. Well, that, that Ontario connection uh, explains your love for improv. Yep. <laughs> you got Vancouver's it. Hollywood and the North. What are you talking about? <laughs> that's so funny. You're right. If it's about content, like I just said, that's one of the things I usually will ask in an IEP or I'll ask the teacher or the resource teacher when they give this lesson that seems, you know, abstract isn't something that's easy for my child. And then the more I think about it, it's like abstract. Like, when do we learn abstract? Because even sometimes someone will talk to me and I'll just... I'll answer a question and then realize that it wasn't really a question. It was some abstract no. comment. Yeah. You know, Adults miss abstract ideas all the time. All the time. And when you have a curriculum that's so based, like you, you really start to see, uh, I think very early on with Liam in education, they would do the who, what, where. And I had to say, you know what? Listen to your question. What are you asking? And ask that. What do you want to know? And ask that in the clearest way. 
And when you start like flowering in all of these things, which unfortunately for me is kind of the way I talk. (laughs) So I had to really make some adjustments in, you know, supporting Liam that I'm sure that my daughter would have really liked if I would have appreciated (laughs) done those earlier. But, you know, it's just having, just knowing like, what do I need to learn? And I think in knowing what I need to learn, then we find how we all learn that because we all have different approaches. We all have different ways in to be able to absorb the information. And that goes really well into my next question of what are ways that you see that benefit an individual with Down syndrome as far as approaches to learning? I think like when you talk about, yeah, Liam's your son. What's your daughter's name? Sophia. Sophia. Such cute names. Um, (laughs) Yeah, like when you talk about, you know, if you think about your student in your classroom, like, yeah, like Liam or anyone who needs support, then it's going to benefit anyone. Like, yeah, your daughter or someone else in the classroom. So I think like we always advocate, like thinking of the students in your class that need that support. And if you, if their needs are met, then everyone in the classroom's needs are going to be met. So I think it's important for, um, you know, when you have a student in your, your classroom that has Down syndrome to know their learning profile, you know, what are going to be some learning challenges? What are their strengths that we can capitalize to, yeah, overcome those challenges? I can kind of give, if you wanted, like a little lowdown of like a, a learner profile of someone with Down syndrome, just from kind of my lens as an SLP, if you wanted, would that be helpful? Please. Yeah, because what I what I think is, you know, a lot of our listeners are supporting their children or loved ones, friends in education, because that's really what it comes down to when you have the homework. And sometimes it is frustrating because we don't know because we are not professionals how to support our children. It took us a long time to realize the abstract. You're asking us something abstract uh, to figure out we can ask for a calculator. So use a calculator. Who, what, when, where? What is a better way of breaking that down? And I know that when I was starting in kindergarten and first grade and with spelling and things like that and trying to teach Liam because he wasn't being taught in school, I would have loved to have known repetition and things like that that I could have used. So what we're looking for is tools that anybody listening can use at home, you know, and an understanding because what we're told about our children is they can't, they won't, uh, they're in school to socialize, that's too hard for them, they need to be in that outside classroom. And we know that's not true. We know that what really impedes their education is the lack of support not given that time to actually take their path to learning that that most people are given, you know, and so any any kind of insight that you can provide to someone who's listening, an approach that they could support their child with, that would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, more than happy to. And feel free, Danielle, if I'm missing anything, or yeah, if you have anything to add. So yeah, I'll start off with like, we know that Um, students with uh, Down syndrome are visual learners. As 
you know, we're giving them information, um, maybe presenting information in a different way. So not just, you know, standing up in the classroom and verbally giving instructions, um, because auditory processing is challenging. So if we can present information in a very visual way, and what that might look like depends maybe on the student and the grade, like an example might be if you know, they're in preschool, that might be a visual schedule, that might be doing, you know, signs for the weather as, you know, you're going through that or signs for colors. Um, but I know for a lot of my students who are, you know, in high school or older, um, that looks like them using like a visual calendar app on their phone. So they remember, you know, what they need to do that day or keeping notes in their phone to know, you know, certain deadlines. So it definitely looks different for the learner, but I think, um, yeah, one of the strengths for our students is definitely, yeah, visual learning and capitalizing on that. They have such strong visual memory for things. So I use a ton of visuals, yeah, with my students um, to kind of, yeah, compensate for those deficits in auditory processing. Another one might be keeping instructions very simple and concrete. So you mentioned, yeah, that abstract learning, um, they do much better with literal and concrete um, information. So anytime I have like the, you know, talking about the WH questions, that's a really good one because that's super abstract. I always pair it with, you know, the signs so they can even get, you know, information about the difference that I'm asking about. Um, we pair it a lot with using pictures that they are familiar with. So using, you know, family pictures and albums, using a lot of visuals for the WH questions and maybe giving them choices to give a response also kind of helps them learn those concepts, which is great. So things they're familiar with, like maybe their favorite characters or their family members is a good way to kind of um, make it more concrete for them um, instead of asking about maybe a picture they're just seeing for the first time. Another thing is like, we know that sometimes speech sounds are difficult, so they could be hard to understand as a, a student and have difficulty. We call this with like intelligibility is the fancy term for it, but all that means it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. It just means that how well someone can understand them. So if a student has a low intelligibility, they're really difficult for someone to understand what they're trying to uh, get across. So we use a lot of um, supports like um, augmentative and alternative communication to help them get their message across. So maybe if they're, you know, trying to retell a story or you don't, you know, catch the, the last word, you know, can they tell us through a picture or do they have, you know, an AC system set up that they can communicate? Because it's, it's really interesting, like there's some schools or some students you know, they're like, oh, like they're not getting this concept or they, you know, they're not recalling this when really like it's a recall test they're answering. They're not actually, if they gave them the supports to communicate what they were, then they would be more readily understood and they could reveal their competence. Um, so always kind of giving them a way to, you know, if they have expressive language deficits, how can we support them to be understood and, you know, to combine words together to convey ideas to people? And another thing is maybe transitions and change <laughs> is difficult for our guys. And there's a lot at school, you know, with going from preferred things to non-preferred, like recess to writing. So again, you know, using those 
the visual um, information. We advise a lot giving, you know, first then instructions. So it's simple, it's clear. We use a lot of visual timers so they can actually see that's like when a clock um, is counting down how long there is. Um, so again, you know, me just telling a student, you have five more minutes is super abstract. But if I pair that and make it more concrete with a timer or a visual of what they're going to do, it's going to be way more concrete and you get way more buy-in if they understand the expectation and that's clear. So we use a lot of visuals, giving them choices as well as like another great strategy because I think a lot of our students in their day, like a lot is planned for them already and we need to kind of give them, you know, ownership over their day and what they want to do. So yeah, we give a lot of choices in their day. I think if they can also have the ability to give their responses in a different format. So I talked a little bit about like when we're presenting information to a student, giving it in two ways, like um, visual and auditory um, together, but also if a student can give their answer in a different format. So whether that's multiple choice or um, I have a little girl I'm thinking of right now who's in kindergarten and she gives her responses in sign language. Yeah, just giving alternative formats for that student, how they communicate. Sometimes like attention might be an issue. And we know that a lot of our students have hearing loss. So another communication consideration might be something like seating in the front of the classroom. Um, so that way, you know, they're looking at the teacher, they're getting like the best possible um, input possible. So we know that, yeah, they might be struggling with hearing loss and already, you know, receptive language is hard. So how can we make the classroom, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, more supportive? Supported, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think it's just so interesting, some of those things that you were talking about, some of the supports that I, I, I feel like we should make little kits for the classroom that include a timer or, you know, an app access to an app for a calendar because I, I do, we started to do that with Liam because now he's going into the fifth grade and they were using this breakdown chart that to me just was age inappropriate and kind of uh, keeping him in a certain place that, you know, still required smiley faces and things that might've been good for a younger student, but we want to see that growth and we have to support that growth. And I think that's, that's part of the accountability or even participation aspect of all of this is I don't think that there's ever thought that goes into the impact of not having the support. So uh, I'll often say that, okay, don't support my son. I'll do it. But then don't negatively impact him. If you're going to choose not to do the job, to not support him, then don't pile on different challenges that he he's already overcoming challenges. He's already finding his way. And the fact that he does know sign language. So a lot of times we'll get the conversation, like you said, of an observed or perceived ability based upon his expression, but he's learned a second language to bridge that gap. And I don't think that's ever taken into consideration. All they want to say is your child can't learn or do this when the whole time he's actually learned a second language and is working twice as hard. I don't know, maybe there's some kind of Maybe we can talk as well later about like some kind of just support pack or checklist that parents can take to where, you know, it, it is about collaboration. And one thing I've learned is that you want it to be the other way where the school and the teacher and all of those people are coming to you with collaboration 
as to how to support your child. But I think really, unless you're with Danielle in the British Columbia, what I've learned as a parent is that you have to create your own, you have to forge that path and bringing a calculator and a timer and a calendar and some of these other things that you were mentioning, Liv, would make a great checklist that perhaps we could create, you know, for parents to be able to, because those little tools make a world of difference. Oh, yeah. And the education system is so rigid in the way it's built. Like it's just set for just this sliver demograph of kids, which doesn't even work for a lot of typical kids. And then you put in some other challenges, but it's so rigid. It's like, at least for us, we have this difficulty of saying just what you were saying, Liv, about what's another way my child can communicate to you what he's trying to say. If it's even just given an answer in sign language, that's, it's confronted with such resistance. And, and I don't know how we change that, but I do see that you, you're doing changes and, and I like it. Well, because, you know, we, we look at our daughter who had those same challenges and, and, but what she was given was time that she mm-hmm. didn't know her times tables. She didn't know there's, so, she didn't understand the abstract of how to break down and pull information from a paragraph. Her, her writing skills weren't like top notch, but she was given the time and the ability to fail. I think she was, she was, the teachers just expected that she would get it, you know, later. So keep going, you know, you'll, you'll get it. You got to nail they this don't down in the summer that or something. of Liam. No, there's no like, If you don't get it now, you're never going to get it, which that isn't the case. And it's not the case for like such a high percentage of students. And I think it's that, uh, that equality is what's missing. So parents or educators, that some of the things are uh, first then. And we see that all the time for Liam. Like you can, if I I always try to put myself in his place, like you can go, all right, we're going to do this, 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 and this. Well, I've learned, I just take notes and I just write everything down. And that's something that I implemented myself. But what if I can give that tool to Liam? And he, man, he gets that. And it does. There's some, there's some freedom that I think we can all understand that when you do have that power of participation, when life doesn't feel like it's just happening to you, I don't know any, any people who enjoy that, but we expect that it's expected of Liam. I've stopped so many sessions where I'm like, guys, give him a chance to answer guys, listen to what he's saying. Let him do it his way. And I think people forget, they detach. There's this agenda of pushing through or checking something off that if you were for one minute put in that place, you you wouldn't like it. You wouldn't like what's being expected from someone who's working very, very hard. Yeah, how frustrating because all we, we hear a lot is that, well, if we continue to push Liam through his grade level curriculum, how frustrated he's going to be that he's not getting it right away. That's not the situation. Liam doesn't get frustrated in that he's not getting it right away. He gets frustrated that when he finally does get it, nobody even understands he got it or doesn't answer a question to help him get there because they don't understand him or they it's don't see where he's coming do. from. It's, yeah, not, it's right. not part of how it is. So I love this. I love the first then. I love having a calendar, whether it be an app or like I do, I do a and oh, I took, I found an old journal and I started, I just wrote the day, but then I also remembered that I drew a little calendar between like each like couple days. So I can say, here's this day. And then this is what we're going for. So it's a visual. You mentioned visual and auditory learning. Can you talk about the difference between those two learnings? Yeah. So if I was an auditory learner, I succeed when someone is verbally giving me instructions 
And that, that depends on my ability to listen information and then comprehend that message. And a lot of students with Down syndrome already have difficulty with, you know, hearing loss. So sometimes they have to work harder to sometimes decode that message. And then on top of that, um, sometimes there is, there is a receptive component. So understanding that auditory information. When I say, yeah, visual learning, that would be you understand instructions or information or ideas through, yeah, visual format. And when I say visual, that could be a picture, um, that could be a gesture as well. So even if a student, you know, is given instructions like, um, go put your shoes on, an example of a visual might be, you know, the sign, or it might be me pointing to my shoes or pointing to their shoes that can also make it more visual for the learner. It could also be um, objects. So I might be, I might tell a student like, oh, it's lunchtime and hold up their lunchbox. So it could also be, yeah, also objects. So any sort of visual information in your environment that you can pull in. I have one student who their visual schedule wasn't working for them. So they draw out together what she's going to do. It can be honestly as simple as, yeah, whiteboard um, and drawing out uh, information. But any way we can make things visual for students, I just find they're way more successful at understanding that information. And also their memory is really strong for those visuals. And that's where we usually start and then we can fade, you know, as they learn the routine, as they learn, you know, I use a lot of sentence visuals for my students, you know, we're working on asking questions. So it might be a sentence strip that's part of our routine each session, asking each other, you know, how are you? But as they're getting the routine, I'm going to start fading that and that becomes something that they can do. But, you know, I always think of, you know, when we're thinking of our students, it's unfortunate that a lot of them have to fail in order for us to then be like, hey, what supports do you need? Or let's relook at you as a learner when really we should be starting off with like, how do you learn? What can I do to meet you where you're at? And then, you know, let's let's fade as we as you progress and as you're making progress and um, then you can change it up. But we need to kind of meet them where we're at when we're learning new skills. Yeah. Anything to add, Danielle? <laughs> Often we will see visuals being used in routines, and that's a really good point that we're going to, um, you know, eventually want to fade the visual support as they get to learn the routine. But I think in more academic type tasks, we might need to always provide a visual support because there are so many different demands being put on their cognitive load, really. So just one example of that would be, um, you know, asking a student to spell a word you know, if you just give them a picture and say, hey, we're going to spell the word cat right now, then they never have to think, oh, what was that word I'm trying to spell? Well, they're also trying to think about what sound makes the k or what letter makes the k sound. And, you know, what did I hear next in that word? They're trying to segment the word into its individual sounds. And then they're also, you know, doing that just a little bit slower than maybe a typical student is. So by the time they get to the T, they've forgotten, or am I spelling can or cat? So just giving them that visual support, and it's not that hard. I mean, I have, you know, a deck of, if I'm working on three letter CVC words with a student and we're trying to spell those words, I have a deck of cards about this big that are just pictures. And I don't have to redo my lesson every time. I just pull out that stack of cards and then I've got pictures just readily available to give to them. Let's practice spelling all these words and they can come from anywhere in that pile. It's not, I feel like sometimes people just, automatically think that this is going to be so much harder 
when it actually, like to me, this is easier. I don't have to think about my list of words. I just know we're working on CBC words. Any of these words will do as long as they can hear all these individual sounds and be able to represent them as letters. They're working on their goal of spelling. And I've got my, my lesson planned. I just pull out that, that little pack, right? And I think the most impactful statement I had heard, and I wish I remembered where, it was years ago, about this um, idea of giving a visual instead of auditory instruction or in, in conjunction with, is that auditory information is momentary. If it's not remembered, the moment it's heard, then it's gone, it's lost. But if you're pairing it with that visual, they can hear it, they can see it, and then they can go back to the visual and see, oh, right, I'm supposed to be getting my shoes on, or, oh, right, you know, the next thing is lunch, so I'm going to put away my pencils now. Like, whatever it is, just being, having that support built in so that the adult or the, you know, teacher, parent, education assistant doesn't have to do so much of the work either, right? They don't have to be constantly reminding if, if they've got that visual there doing the work for them. That's such a great insight and also speaks on collaboration when you said about showing the picture for the CVC words. Those are some those are some of the foundational words that children are using. And you forget like light bulb moment. Oh, I thought that oh cat is in November of first grade. That's when we have to learn it. But you forget that you're not learning that. You're learning the breaking down of the word and the spelling through the sounds, right? So when we take away that constraint or what we think the lesson is and focus more on the actual teaching, that's what it's about. But I think that we do, we get caught up in, you know, Friday, we have to know these six words, Mm -hmm. but that's not what we're learning. We're not learning these six words. We're learning how to spell. And I think we forget that. I forgot that. No, I don't even know if I ever knew that. Do you know? Like, I, I just knew that we had to spell cat and we had to spell hope and we had to spell ways, three different ways, you know, and that's not fair. From the outside, we go through this routine and it's not fair to the learner, whoever the learner is, because if they don't, if they can't rise up to meet that structure, then they feel like they failed. Cause I know that was a lot. My daughter dealt with that a lot. Like she, she was constantly feeling like she wasn't, if she wasn't getting it, she wasn't learning. So can we remove that? And I love the thought of taking that pressure away. I wouldn't, I've never thought that by the time he got to that last letter, he forgot what he was spelling. Mm-hmm. Could be a couple of different words. So that could also be because of the auditory processing, right? He maybe heard, maybe he heard can the first time. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he didn't hear cat at all, but you're asking for cat and he spells can and he gets it wrong, but that's not what he heard. And we have no way of knowing that. So if we give him a picture, then at least takes away some of that, like, yeah, that fuzziness of did they, do they really know what we're asking them for? But, and what, how does that feel on the inside for my son who's spelling and which is something of course that they said he would, he can't do and he's spelling and he spells, he's like, there you go. And someone puts like a big, like yes. black mark through it. It's like, I mean, how does that feel? How, how do you, I mean, we've all experienced that when we're like, yeah, I did my best. And someone looks at it and goes, why didn't you do what I asked you? And because you just misunderstood or you, you thought this, what was asked of you as it just, if we think about that, if we can stop being so separate from what we're doing, if we can just connect and just think about, 
I forget the exact wording of it, Liz, you said something about instead of waiting till there was a problem, how can I support you? It's seeing every learner and saying, okay, how do you learn? How can I support you to be your, your best, your best self, right? That's, I think that's what, I think that's what we need. I think that's the, the mindset. I think the mindset has gotten fuzzy. I think it, it's been influenced and impacted by so many things, even just the right to an education. When, when the right to an education is something that people don't feel is there, you know, things are kind of put together haphazardly. And now we're trying to, what is it? Put lipstick on a pig. <laughs> you know, do you know that phrase? Um, but I don't know if that's a good phrase. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if Pig, Miss Piggy wears lipstick and Liam loves her. But, you know, we're trying, we're trying to make something into something that's not like we're, we're yeah. you, like we're, we're trying to pretend we're pretending something is what it's not. And if we can see what it actually is, then we can learn these approaches. Like just, ladies, your insight has changed the way from going forward that I'll teach my son because now I understand those pictures. Those pictures inform and support him so he can... Throughout the whole process of him learning in that moment. And I think Danielle brings up a good point too where, where maybe these different kind of strategies or extra strategies feel extra in like bogging down the instructor. But I think that's such a, a narrow way to look at things. If we're looking at how am I going to teach today in this moment, then yeah, it could be an extra step. But if we're looking at the success of the child, the success of the student, how even quickly we're going to get to the end goal, then it's less work. I think too, what people don't realize is the connection between academic success and what we hear of as being a problem in the classroom, and that is behavior. So if we're giving students opportunities to succeed in the classroom, we're not going to see the kind of behavior challenges that many teachers in inclusive classrooms struggle with. Because that connection with, like you said, having success and not feeling like, you know, you're trying your best and you're getting it wrong anyway. So why bother trying? I'm going to run out the door instead, you know, makes a lot more sense. Let's start with success, even if it's something that's really you know is going to be way too simple for that student. If they come into the session or or I should say the lesson and sit down and they get something right right away or they get four things right right away, they're going to want to stick around a little bit longer, right? And see, hey, what else have you got for me? So I think, yeah, just realizing, you know, the, the, the scope of what changing one thing can have on just everyday classroom interactions is, you know, I think before someone was talking and I was just thinking, this is just so much more about a mindset shift than it is about anything else. You know, if you believe that the student can succeed, you know, if you believe that they are, have the right to an education, if you believe that they deserve a little bit of extra time in the classroom over some of the typical students, sometimes, like, why is it always the kids who have extra needs who are being said, yeah, well, we don't have time to do that. So you don't get it. Maybe it's okay to just let the rest of the class work on some seat work that they're totally able to do on their own while you spend a few extra minutes with this student who really needs it. Um, I think that is a true picture of inclusion when you can see that, you know, every student is getting supported and also being asked to do a little bit on their own or being asked to, you know, maybe take the back seat for a few minutes because it seems to be often the child with special needs who is taking that back seat. Well, we do it all the time when you said uh, giving the students maybe something a little easy at first to get right and a success. We do that all the time in relationships, in icebreaker moments when we have a big group. Liv, when you talk about improv in those warm-up games, 
there's times you just do things so that we're all going to get this right. And we're all going to have success in this room. And then we take that success and that foundation and we move forward so that the classroom doesn't feel like this gauntlet that we're going through that just waiting for you to fail. The truth is, if there's a neurotypical child, so many times, we've been in classrooms, it's never a question if the classroom is stopped for any other student. Kids are encouraged to ask questions and you hear the questions and some of the questions are, have just been answered, you know, and when the teacher is snarky and goes, well, I just answered that, you know, you go, wait, that's not very, you know, that's not, that's not the acceptable way they're, they're supported because that's what education is. That's what learning is. And I think you're, you're absolutely right, Danielle. When it's a neurotypical student, it's just what we do. That's how we teach. That's how we learn. It's built into every conversation in a parent-teacher conference we've ever had. When it's a child with a disability or a learning difference or an IEP, that's when it's like, we can't have them in our classroom because they need this extra support. I don't know any other child, even the brilliant ones, even the ones that are so smart that don't require some kind of extra support because Liam's best friend is brilliant. He finishes his work so fast and he gets bored, and then he starts to disrupt the class, right? He needs extra support. You're right, Danielle. It's it's changing our minds. You know, I think that sometimes it gets taken personally. I love and respect a good teacher. I enjoy nothing more than the last 10 weeks of Liam's fourth grade, seeing and experiencing a teacher who loves to teach, who is invested in the learning. I love that. Not all teachers are created equal. And I think sometimes people take it personally when you question what they're doing, but we're not questioning them. We're questioning a system that that was put in place when they didn't feel that my son deserved an education and why is he in my classroom? Or the kid wouldn't be in the But if he was, this is what we're going to give you something less than because we don't expect you to succeed. But things are changing and we're, we're learning. And if we don't then evolve with, with evolution, then it's just like, why are you holding on so tightly to something that is no longer, we know has been proven because that's what we do as we prove. It's been proven that these beliefs are not true. You know, so it is, Danielle, right, spot on with, um, it is a mindset. It's, it's, we just have to change our minds. I do want to just make sure that I put in there that I, I feel for teachers that they have so much on their plates and they have so many things that they need to, you know, that take away from just the everyday teaching. But like we said, it's all part of that everyday teaching. But yeah, it can be hard to even find the time to to realize that that's what you need to do or just implementing these few couple little strategies can change the day for this student and for your teaching, right? So yeah, it's, it's pretty tricky, I think, to, to navigate all these pieces, especially when we've got this top-down system telling us the way that it has to be done and not really making it easy to make those accommodations or to change our, our mind shift. No, that's what I, my introduction of about teachers, I, I get that. And I think it is more than just the teacher. I think it is the system that doesn't allow them to support and do, and it, it creates a whole mindset and structure. And I get it. Like we've been told by so many teachers and it's one of the most frustrating things. I don't have time or I don't know how to do that. And it's frustrating. It doesn't make it right, but it's true. And I get it, but it does. It's, I am an adult. 
I need to find a way because my son shouldn't suffer because I don't know how to do that. And the system should the system support should the support teachers. That. And that's, but that's why I'm saying, can we have these little kits and this little checklist that says, you know, Liam has a time, here's his timer. Here's if, and then here's some pictures. Here's a calendar because they're so the fixes, some fixes are bigger than others, but a few like simple fixes. I don't think people think it's simple because it doesn't seem simple. Obviously not everything is a, a quick, simple fix, but some of the slightest supports, I don't think it's understood that there are some little shifts we can make that don't require a, 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 this, a big change. It's just these little things just, that go just do so, it a so little far. differently. And we all do it when we, when we find that that's like part of life as we find out, Oh, I can do it this way. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a correlation. I don't think there's a correlation. And, and I don't, maybe that that's the goal is to, to see, I think that as we see more, um, individuals with Down syndrome having success in education and really pushing through because, you know, you have the advocates that are pushing through. Once that becomes like undeniable, unfortunately, that's when I think that you, you can't turn, turn your head to providing those supports. So we just have to find a way and keep the conversation alive and open to new supports and ideas and way to transform our approach to education. So it evolves to something that is actually effective and uplifts a community, changes the perceptions that are out there. Liv and Danielle, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes. And we look forward to exploring your website and all the supports that you have there. And we look forward to continuing this conversation real soon. Thank you so much for having me. I had a really good time talking with you both and um, hearing Um, you share about your son. Thank you. I too have really enjoyed our conversation and hope to uh, keep in touch and, and keep the conversation going. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Amazon.